Father, we thank you for the children of the church. Um, Lord, we know that in your covenant promise, you have made uh, room, space uh, for the generations. And so, Lord, we pray not only for um, those who are parents, uh, those who are um, singles, those who are in youth group. We pray also for the infants in our church, and we pray for the children of the church. We pray that from generation to generation, we would all fall more deeply in love with the Savior Jesus. And we pray that one of the ways in which you help us do that is by listening to your word. And so now as the children of the church are dismissed, I pray, God, that you would help them today sense once again the love of Christ for them, as well as giving to us uh, that by your Holy Spirit. And so we pray, oh God, that you would bless our time in your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You guys are dismissed. Well, if you have a Bible, please turn with me to Esther chapter 2, starting with verse 19, uh, either in your Bible or also here in the sermon insert, and it'll be projected here overhead. Uh, if you are new or haven't been with us in a while, we have started a new sermon series in the book of Esther that we're calling The Silent Sovereignty of God. And so today we find ourselves at the end of chapter 2, reading through until the end of chapter 3. And today's sermon I've entitled The Silence of God. And so please stand with me now for the reading and the receiving of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Hear now the reading of God's word. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Verse 21. In those days as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai, when the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the, Ag the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Verse 5. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast a purr, that is, they cast lots before Haman day after day. And they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. The laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. Verse 10, So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. 
Then the king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the first month, and an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day. And verse 15. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. You know, when it comes to sensing God's presence and his activity in our lives, I think most of us want a kind of Elisha on Mount Carmel kind of experience. And by that I mean in 1 Kings 18, when Elisha was battling the prophets of Baal and Asherah, he called upon the Lord and fire, the fire of the Lord fell down in heaven in such a powerful way that when all people saw it, they fell on their faces and they proclaimed that the Lord is God. We want that kind of experience of God in our lives, don't we? And yet the truth really is that most of us sense God's presence and his activity in our lives like Elijah in the cave. In the very next chapter, in 1 Kings 19, Elijah is hidden in a cave and God sends a great and mighty wind. And then he sends an earthquake. And then he sends a fire, but he's present in none of them. Instead, God chooses to be with Elijah through the sound of a whisper. The question is, are you content with the whisper of God in your life? In fact, even more than that, are you content when God is silently involved? You know, we often conclude that the silence of God means one of four things, at least four things. One, the silence of God means he doesn't exist. He doesn't exist. That's why he's silent. For others, well, he doesn't exist, or he does exist, but... He sort of created the world, and he steps back, and he just lets the world run as a clockmaker winds up a clock and lets it run. Third, you may conclude, well, he exists. He's all-powerful God, but he's not loving, and so he doesn't care. So that he sees the things that are happening, he could stop it, but chooses not to. Or fourthly, oh, God exists, and he's an all-loving, caring God, but he just isn't powerful enough to step in and get involved in our lives. And many of us conclude these different thoughts about God when we experience his silence in our lives. But Esther gives us a different explanation for why God is often so silent. You see, Esther teaches us that God's silence sometimes is a test given to us so that we will grow in trusting him more and trusting in his sovereignty. You see, seizing the silence as a test to trust God instead of seizing it as a reason to doubt God, it actually gives us a new perspective on life. It actually allows us to grow in the midst of difficult circumstances instead of just withering away under them. And I think this is the believer that we all need to be. This is the maturity which we need to attain. 
I'd love for us to grow as Christians so that whenever there's silence, we don't receive it as a reason to doubt, but an opportunity to trust in him more and more. And that is our gospel truth this afternoon. The silence of God is a test to trust the sovereignty of God. That his silence is a test, an opportunity to trust in his sovereignty. So I want to reflect on this gospel truth and this passage under three headings. First, the injustices of life. Second, the threats of the enemy. And third, the only reason to trust. So the first point is this, the injustices of life. If you look at our passage, we're told in chapter 2, verse 19, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Now, Mordecai, we've established, is Esther's cousin, and he was some kind of official in the king's court. Now, to sit at the gate probably is not uh, literal, meaning he literally sat at the gate, but rather is a common expression, meaning that he held a position in the king's court. Sort of like today we would say that a judge sits on a bench. Well, if you go behind, you know, where he's sitting, he's not literally sitting on a bench, but it's just an expression. So Mordecai occupies some kind of position in the court. He's some kind of official. And then the author gets straight to the drama. And we learn that there are two men who are planning to assassinate the king. And verse 21 identifies these men, Bigthan and Teresh, as two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold. Now, the eunuchs were very trustworthy men. They were sort of like secret service agents meant to protect the king at all costs. And so it's very surprising when we find out that they're using their insider knowledge to execute or to kill the king. And so they are working out this plan, getting ready to do this assassination attempt. And then verse 22 says, and this came to the knowledge of Mordecai. Now, their plans are discovered, their scheme is foiled. The question for me as a reader is, how did Mordecai find out? And this is a really exciting part of the story. We all want to know what happens. Now, I don't know about you, but I love the original Star Wars movies. Now, do you remember the opening scene of episode four, A New Hope? Darth Vader boards Princess Leia's ship. And she's seen putting a file into R2-D2, right? And she's wearing that hood, and she sees those, says those famous words, help me, help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi, you're my only hope. Well, the question has always bugged me for so many years, and so many fans were bothered by this. How did they get the blueprints to the Death Star? And then the second question, how is it possible that one little laser shot could explode this entire project? Well, you know what? Star Wars fans everywhere were blessed and rewarded when another Star Wars movie came out entitled Rogue One that answered the question. Rogue One told the story leading right up to the opening events of A New Hope and finally settled the question of how. How did they get the blueprints? And it only took 39 years. But now we know, and everything makes sense, and our souls are okay. Well, how does Mordecai come to discover the assassination attempt? We're all dying to know. We want to know. But we're never told. And instead of 39 years later, you're going to have to wait to heaven to find out. You see, all the author writes is all, and, and this came to the knowledge of Mordecai. And as a reader, you go, that's it? That's all you're going to tell us? And it leaves us so unsettled. It leaves us unsatisfied. 
But there's a reason for it. By leaving this a mystery, by leaving this detail concealed, the author is actually highlighting the silent sovereignty of God. If the author gave us a reason and an explanation, then divine intervention would be dismissed. If a plausible reason were given, we'd be quick to accept that and forget about God entirely. For example, we often talk about uh, miraculous things in our lives being God moments. In fact, I think Elmer actually used this expression at a town hall meeting, a God moment. Well, what do we mean by that? And we often refer to those times when, when doors are miraculously opened for us or to us that are so perfect in their timing that we conclude God was involved. And so, for example, imagine there's a struggling family in need of next, the next month's rent. And the father is praying and he's concerned and he's worried and he gets a phone call one day from one of the deacons. And that deacon was fasting and doing QT that morning and just felt burdened to share his wealth and said, brother, I just feel burdened to pay for your rent for the next two months. And in response to that, we say, wow, that's a God moment. God really stepped into that family situation when they needed him the most. We'd say that, right? Deacons, feel free to pray this prayer. <laughs> but consider this. When that struggling family needs to pay rent, and then the father is stressing out, but some overtime shifts opens up at work, and he labors, and he works 80 hours that week, and he gets some money, and he's able to pay the rent and all the bills on time. How many people say, wow, Jehovah's Jireh? God is the provider. The Lord provides. We don't usually account for God's sovereign provision in those kinds of moments, do we? We don't think about how God sovereignly led that person to a job where overtime is even possible, and then all the events leading up to the need for overtime in the company, and then God sustaining that person with enough strength so he can labor and not get sick for the 80 hours. We don't think about that, do we? And so we dismiss that God is involved because there's a completely human explanation. And when the author, so when the author is leaving this a mystery, he's clearing the room for all human reason and logic so you know, you must conclude, God somehow is involved. You see, if we were reading this story and it said, well, Mordecai one day was on his way to his palace and his shoe was untied and he bent down behind the shoe, but there was a wall that was three feet tall and the two guards were walking by and they looked around and said, oh, no one's here. And they talked about it. And that's how Mordecai heard. Then you would say, oh, that makes sense. There's the reason. You wouldn't, conclu you wouldn't conclude God's involvement. We would never pause long enough to see that the author is actually hinting that God is silently at work. So then Mordecai tells Esther, Esther tells the king, verse 23 says, when the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. So certainly God had Mordecai in the right place at the right time to do the right thing. So then surely Mordecai will be honored in the right way. So chapter 3, verse 1 begins, After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Mordecai the Jew. But that's not what it says. It says, After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite. Well, doesn't this bother you? Shouldn't Mordecai get the promotion? He did the good thing. Who is this guy? Haman. 
Well, there's a break between chapter 2 and chapter 3, and so chapter 3 begins with this phrase. Well, after these things, the king promoted Haman. Well, you know what? After these things is only technically true. It's a way that, you know, some children, when they don't want to lie to their parents but don't want to tell them the truth, tell them a kind of half-truth. When did you get home? You know, after the sunset. <laughs> what time is that? Haman, Mordecai did this great deed. After these things, Haman got promoted. Well, you know why I bring that up? Because after these things make it, makes it sound like the next day or the next week or a month later. When in fact, the author goes out of his way to stitch two separate, two different events that are separated by five years. This is five years later. The author is taking two events that are five years apart and putting them together to make a point. You see, in reality, so chapter 2 takes place, it says in chapter 2, verse 16, that this is the seventh year of uh, the reign of Xerxes. So seven years in. And then this event of Haman getting promoted, chapter 3, verse 7, takes place in the twelfth year of King Xerxes' reign. So it's actually five years apart. But the author is intentionally trying to tell the story in a way where he's linking the two together. Why? Because he wants to show you, he, he, as, a, as an author, as a literary artist, he wants you to feel in your gut, what the heck? Why isn't Mordecai promoted? So he's stitching the two narratives together to draw attention to the unfairness experienced by Mordecai. Or another word, way of saying that is the injustice done to Mordecai. And when he does this, this actually exposes the, 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 the reality, reality of life. I mean, isn't our lives full of injustices and unfair things? Life is totally full of unfair outcomes. Injustices are committed against us and the ones that we love all the times. Things that we do deserve, we don't get. Things that other people don't deserve, they do get. You know, later we find out that Haman, he is a hateful, selfish, proud man. In fact, the author hides the reason why Haman got promoted at all. It doesn't tell you. But you know from Haman's actions that he is a proud man. Someone's not bowing down to him. One person in the entire nation not bowing down to him, and it eats at him. He's a horrible person. And yet Mordecai is passed over for a promotion, and it seems like Haman is getting it. And it infuriates us because of that, you know, age-old saying that, you know, nice guys finish last. But that's the way life is, isn't it? You see, like last week we talked about compromise. We talked about the temptation to compromise between living between two worlds. And I hope you were challenged. I, you know, I have my favorite in Christ. I'm going to live uncompromised. But what if you don't compromise? Does that mean life is simple and perfect and everything that you do leads to good results? And all of us know that's not true. We've all lived enough to know that there are so many injustices that come against, so much unfairness. Let's say you're at work and the quarter is ending, and you decide, I'm not gonna take a shortcut, I'm not gonna inflate my numbers, I'm gonna present the result of honest work. Well, when you do that, will you be appreciated for your honesty? Or will you be critiqued for your lack of production? And all the while, your coworker who has no problem fudging the details and exaggerating their numbers, 
That coworker starts to win favor from your boss and from your director now is being considered for a promotion. And you just sit and you think, how do I deal with that injustice? I chose to honor God and yet I'm passed over for the results. Or let's say that you're at school and you see somebody getting bullied or somebody getting picked on and you decide, I'm going to stand up for this person. And so you confront those bullies. You befriend the person who is socially on the sidelines. You choose to show them the love of Jesus. But then what happens when your friends stop hanging out with you as a result? And that all those kids who were being mean are becoming more and more popular and well-liked while your image starts going down. Where is God in that? It seems like God calls us to obey, follow him in the hard things, and then he leaves us. Let's say somebody has wronged you, really wronged you, they hurt you. In fact, you're one of many victims that this person has assaulted and abused. And there's a whole trail of damaged persons, people that lead straight to this person. And in you know, in your heart of hearts, this person deserves to be found out. They deserve to be caught. They should be exposed. And yet the opposite of true is true. Rather than withering and declining, they continue flourishing and increasing in favor with others. Rather than, than suffering for their wrongdoings, they are being rewarded. And you know and you feel that it's all so wrong. This is an insult to justice. This is not fair. You can't help but think, how does this make any sense at all? You see, you can insert your experience into this. We've all suffered injustice and unfairness in life through various circumstances, sometimes big, sometimes small. But no matter what shape or size, they are many, aren't they, in your life. Mordecai experienced it, and so do we. Here's the problem. The problem is the temptation is to sense the silence of God and not lean into the sovereignty of God that somehow in the midst of this he is in control. But lean into doubting God and into questioning him. We always ask God to help us live by greater sight, don't we? But few of us ever ask that we would live by greater faith. So we've established we live in a fallen world where injustice and unfairness often happen. But there's another force at work. And this is our second point, the threats of the enemy. You see, because we live in a world where there's also great evil present. It's not just that the world is fallen and things don't go the way they're supposed to go, but there is a great evil present. There is an accuser who is at work doing his very best to thwart God's promises and purposes to be against you and not for you. Ephesians 2 calls him the prince of the power of the air and tells us that he is the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That there is this great evil one who stands as God's enemy and stands as an enemy to God's people. And we see his influence in the world and we see his influence in the person of Haman who in verse 10 is identified as the enemy of the Jews, as an enemy of God's people. Now, Haman is an interesting character. As, as the story continues, Haman is promoted. We're not told why. And all the king's servants are told to bow down to him. One, uh, one pastor commented that um, 
it was normal for an official to be respected and bowed down to, but something in Haman must have been so wrong that, that the king actually had to command people to respect him. But then something interesting happens in verse 2. It says, but Mordecai did not bow down. Mordecai refused to bow down. Now, maybe you can say Mordecai was bitter. He deserved a promotion. Haman gets promoted. I'm not going to bow down to this guy. And then you think, it was five years Mordecai has been holding on to this for a while. But actually, I don't think that's what it is. There's a historical and personal reason. It's important that we're told here, Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha. Now, historically, the Agagites were enemies of Israel. So you're going to have to follow me a little bit on this. The Agagites are the same as the Amalekites. The reason is the most famous Amalekite king is named Agag. So his people are just called Agagites. So Agagites, Amalekites, the same people. So the, the way the history goes is after Israel left Egypt, they were set free from Egypt, they're out in the desert, the first nation to march against Israel in battle and threaten to destroy them were the Amalekites. But God, of course, protects and he delivers the Israelites. It's the scene where they're fighting and Moses, uh, whenever his hands are raised, Israel's winning. And when his hands start to lower, uh, Israel starts losing. And so Aaron and her come over and they're lifting Moses' arms and Israel ends up defeating the Amalekites. So God is protecting his people. So then it says this in Exodus 17. I have it up here on the slide. This is what it says. God tells Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. So this is God's promise. He is set an intent on keeping a promise that he will destroy all the Amalekites. And how is he going to do this? He's going to do it through Israelite's future king. So fast forward a couple hundred years. Now it's 1 Samuel 15. King Saul is the first established monarch of Israel, and he begins drawing up battle plans to war with the Amalekites. And this is God's one command to him. I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them. This is pretty intense language. But if you're familiar with the story, Saul ends up disobeying God because he doesn't kill all of the Amalekites. He actually spares King Agag. And as a result, the kingdom is taken away from Saul. So there's this historic battle between Israel and the Amalekites, or the Agagites. And then there's this story between King Saul and King Agag. Well, I'm going to point out a little detail. If you remember back in chapter 2, verse 5, Mordecai is introduced first as a Jew, right? Now there once was a Jew whose name was Mordecai, but then it gives all this extra detail. Chapter 2, verse 5 says, Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shammai, son of Kish, a Benjaminite. And you're like, okay, that's a mouthful. Why are you telling us all this history? Because Esther is not given this history. Haman is not given this kind of history. The king isn't given this kind of history. Well, here's the author's point. Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shammai, son of Kish, a Benjaminite. Do you remember what tribe King Saul descended from? Benjamin. Do you remember who, what the name of King Saul's father was? Kish. You see... 
By telling you all these details, the author is linking Mordecai with Saul to establish a parallel. What's that parallel? The conflict between Haman and Mordecai parallels the conflict between King Agag and King Saul, parallels the conflict between the Amalekites and the Israelites, parallels that ancient conflict in the garden between the enemy and God. Since the garden, the enemy has been seeking to frustrate God's promises and hurt God's people. That is his one and only sole mission. So when Haman hears of Mordecai's refusal to bow down in verse 6, what does he say? It escalates really quickly. Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. One guy refuses to bow to Haman. His conclusion, I'm going to kill his whole kind. Well, that escalated quickly. But what we see here is the enemy at work, the threat that has plagued God's people from generation to generation. Adam and Eve were threatened to be destroyed by the serpent at the time of the garden, but God ultimately delivered them. Israel was threatened to be destroyed by the Amalekites at the time of Moses, but God ultimately delivered them. Israel was threatened to be destroyed by the Agagites at the time of Saul, but God ultimately delivers them. And now God's people are under threat to be destroyed by Haman the Agagite in the time of Esther. The question is, will they believe God will yet again deliver them? Or will they interpret his silence as his abandonment? Now we know what the answer should be. It's very clear to us but we're very blind when the same question comes to our own lives. 2,000 years later, we know that Haman's plot was eventually uh, spoiled. It fell apart. God delivered his people from the threat of extinction. I mean, I guess if you haven't read the book of Esther, I just spoiled it for you. That's what happens. But having seen God's faithfulness unfold throughout redemptive history, the question comes to us, when God is silent and isn't splitting seas open for you and he isn't bringing down city walls for you, will you tr still trust in his sovereign purpose to deliver you? You know, if you are one of God's people, you will be threatened and assaulted because there is a great enemy of God who, has, who is at work to frustrate and to foil the promises of God for you. Now, it's not always through a threatening a life. Although it's true, in many parts of the world, many Christians are threatened by the enemy as they are being physically persecuted and some of them killed for their faith. But in our part of the world, in our lives, Christians aren't spared from that same threat, but the threat comes to us through attacks and other forms of persecution. One way that we see this is that if you are a believer in one of God's people, your biblical convictions are often construed to be hateful. Isn't that true? That your voicing of any biblical truth is now considered hate speech. Some believers are being sued and taken to court for their beliefs, which threatens their names, their reputation, their livelihood. I don't know if you heard about the decision that happened this past Monday, earlier this week, when the Supreme Court made the decision uh, on a case involving a Colorado business owner, Jack Phillips, who out of his Christian conviction refused to decorate a cake for a same-sex wedding. This happened, this is an incident in 2012. 
And so this couple then went to the Colorado Civil Rights Commission, who directed the owner to follow all these orders and um, all these things that went against his religious beliefs. And they were saying, this is discrimination, and they mandated company policy changes, and you need to restructure employee training, and you need to now file quarterly reports for the next two years about your progress in complying with our orders. And as a result, Masterpiece Cake Shop lost over 40% of his business in the process. And all the appeals and the trials, it took six years, and only last week did the Supreme Court reverse the commission's decision. And the point is simply there is that's an illustration of how the enemy, the evil one, he doesn't work by uh, causing, come, uh, bringing people to your door, knocking with machetes, saying, are you a Christian? But working through the spirit of the age and the values that, and, the, and the convictions held by the world. And there are so many examples where Christians lose because the enemy is at work threatening us. And often this can cost you your job and it can drag your reputation, your name through the mud and it could take your community away and take away, take away anything that you value. But the threats of the enemy can also be spiritual. He can accuse. He can shame you. He can guilt you. He can discourage you. And all of this leads to a destroying, a disruption of the soul so that we're led then to things like depression and suicidal thoughts and panic attacks and anxiety and questioning faith and long seasons of doubt and lapses in moral judgment and a whole variety of things because the enemy is attacking you. But you need to know this, that, that when the threats come our way, they are not out of God's control. He is not surprised or thrown off by them. You know, as we learn from Job, the enemy does not work outside of God's sovereign control. And what God is doing in that is he is taking the threats and he is using them. He is turning them into opportunities for you to trust him. Not for you to trust yourself more, not for you to trust another person, but for you to trust him. That when injustices happen in your lives, when threats come your way, because they will, because they're inescapable in this world, the question comes to us, will I trust God and his sovereignty in the midst of this? You see, God gives us the reason to trust in him, even despite his seeming silence. We can trust in him. This is our third point. The only reason to trust. The only reason to trust. God is working in the events in this story, and his fingerprints are all over the story. And as we learn to spot them in the story, we need to learn how to spot his fingerprints in our lives. Let me show you just two of them. When Haman plans to destroy the Jews in verse 7, this is what it says, verse 7. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast put, that is, they cast lots before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month. Now, it's really easy and tempting to just kind of gloss over that and read it quickly. But here's what you need to pick up on this. When Haman decided that he wanted to kill Mordecai and all of the Jews, he decided, I'm going to cast lots. It's the first month. And he's casting lots, saying, when should I do this? When should I do this? And he probably has maybe 12 different sticks that he's thrown. Which, which, which year will it, or which month will it come out to? And he starts this in the first month. And when did the lots fall? The 12th month. That's like saying he took out a calendar in January, and he's like, oh, I really want to kill them. When can I do that? 
And somehow he ends up in December on the other side of the calendar year. It's delayed as much as possible. And you can think, oh, that's just luck. That's just coincidence. No, friends, that's providence. That God is at work. Proverbs 16.33 reminds us the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. That God is sovereignly involved. And in his involvement, he's turning the threats into opportunities to trust him. But pay attention to the second detail. Next notice, the edict goes out. Verse 12 says, Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and an edict, according to all, the, all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps, and it goes out. Now, do you know when this death warrant was sent out to God's people? The author tells us the 13th day of the first month. Was it Friday the 13th? What, what is it? No. Do you know when that is? Do you know when the 13th day of the first month is? And this is one of those reasons why we need to know the Old Testament and the details are so important. You think, why do I need the Old Testament? Jesus, you know, it's easier to read the New Testament. The Old Testament gives the New Testament some meaning and it gives even other parts of the Old Testament meaning. This edict was written and sent out the 13th day of the first month. Well, let me read for you Exodus chapter 12, verse 18. In the first month, from the 14th day of the month at evening, do you know what celebration takes place? The Passover. In the 14th day of the first month. This means the authorized genocide of the Jews is issued on the eve of Passover. This is not mere coincidence. What is God up to? Well, remember what Passover is all about. It's about remembering God's salvation from a nationwide death threat by the angel of destruction of the firstborn son. You see, when they receive this edict, they are preparing on the eve of Passover. They're getting ready for Passover. What better time to receive this edict? Because as they are remembering God's past salvation, it serves as every reason for them to trust in God for their present salvation. As they celebrate the God who delivered them in their history, they have every reason now to trust God who will deliver them in the future. You see, friends, we too have a reason to trust in God's sovereignty in the midst of his silence when there's injustice done in our lives, when there's threats happening all around us. Why? Because God has sent to us the true Passover lamb, Jesus Christ. He has worked out our salvation through him. We've been delivered and ultimately saved from sin and death. And if God gave us Christ, then how can we look at the cross, then look at our present circumstances, and then conclude God is not working out something for our good? You see, two things. First, Jesus took the greatest injustice in your place. Jesus took the greatest injustice in your place. God allowed his son to experience this injustice for you and me. The innocent one of heaven took on our sins. He died a sinner's death. If that's the case, if that injustice was done against Jesus, then why would God allow any injustice to ruin your life? The gospel assures you that he won't. Because of the great price that he paid for you through Jesus' blood, God assures you that every injustice you face, every unfair thing that you suffer, he will one day make right. 
After all, even Jesus, who suffered unjustly at the hands of bloodthirsty men who wanted to kill him and crucify him, even Jesus was vindicated when he was raised from the dead on the third day and justly established and set at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And the gospel says that when you are united to Christ by faith, no injustice will ever have an ultimate say over your life. Because Christ endured that for you, and he was raised, and justice was served. So you are united to that Savior. Whatever injustice that you feel, whatever injustice and unfairness you're going through in this life, the Lord will restore justice on the final day. Second, Jesus took the greatest threat in your place. Jesus not only stared at the threat of death face to face, but he suffered through death for us. You know, the enemy thought that he won when Jesus was crucified and placed in the tomb, but he did not know that Jesus' suffering of death was to secure for us eternal life. And if Jesus underwent that for you, if he underwent the threat of death for you, he suffered death for you, then why would God allow any threat to take your life? The gospel assures us he won't. The gospel says that when you are united to Christ by faith, no threat can jeopardize what you have eternally in him. And the question for us, do we have eyes of faith to see beyond the immediate dangers and the immediate injustices that present themselves to us? Because the gospel now gives us eyes to see the security of hope we have in Jesus. What injustice can undo me? What threat can truly overtake me? For Christ, my rock and my savior, endured injustice, the greatest injustice for me. He endured the greatest threat for me. The gospel allows us to embrace the silence of God and trust and said in his sovereignty because you know the one who gave you Jesus is working out all things for your good. The question is, do you have eyes to see it? Now, let me close with this illustration. There is uh, one of my favorite movies. is an early 90s movie, not very well known. It's called Searching for Bobby Fischer. Some of you may have heard of it. Bobby Fischer was a uh, uh, chess champion, and uh, but th- but this movie is about um, set in the early '90s about a child prodigy chess player named Joshua Waitskin, and um, in the movie, in the final scene, I wanted to show it, but I'll just describe it. In the final scene of the movie, he's playing in the championship game. He's just a little kid, and he's playing, and his parents and his chess coach are outside watching from a little monitor in the lobby. And it looks like he's going to lose because he has significantly less pieces on the board than his opponent. And so realizing, looking at the board, realizing it, he pauses. And he's this little boy. He's really cute. He kind of goes down low, and he's just looking at his pieces. And he's staring intently at the board. And then you begin to hear his coach's voice kind of in the background, right? He's kind of replaying this scene in his head, this repeated refrain that he remembers his coach saying during his uh, chess instruction and his lessons. And he hears the coach say, don't move until you see it. And the boy's response, I can't see it. He has like a lisp, it's so cute. (laughs) Don't move until you see it. I can't see it. Don't move until you can see it. I can't see it. You see, the coach is trying to, in this scene, he's, he's trying to teach the boy to see beyond the pieces on the board. 
he's trying to teach the boy to see 12 moves ahead. And so this boy in the tournament is looking at the board intently, and his eye wanders over to a single lonely pawn on the board, and he begins to stare at it. And the coach who is watching from outside sees it on the monitor, and he, explains, he exclaims, he's got it. He's got it. And then Josh offers the competitor an opportunity for a draw. And everybody is confused and nobody can believe it because the board is clearly in the opponent's favor and the pieces are stacked against him. But only Josh and his coach know the eventual outcome that'll come 12 moves later. And in an epic sequence, Josh defeats the boy and becomes the champion. And I love this scene in the movie because it teaches us a lesson about God and his silent sovereignty. That when we look at our lives around us, the pieces of our lives are arranged and it may look like they're stacked against us. That we are going to lose. But in those moments, the gospel trains our eyes to see not what's in front of us, but 12 moves ahead. If we know that every injustice or threat in life becomes an opportunity to trust in God, if we know that God is sovereignly at work even when we don't see him and we don't hear him, we can see it. You see, apart from hope in the gospel, when life gets too tough, when injustices are done against you at school or at work or in your family life, when threats come out against you for your faith, if you don't have hope in the gospel, all you can see, is, all you can say is, I can't see it. I can't see what good can come out of this. And no matter how hard you look, God will seem to be nowhere. But when the gospel gives you new eyes to see, when you remember what we have ultimately in Christ and what God is working out in our lives, then and only then can we say, I see it. I see that God is up to something and it's for my good. You see, Mordecai suffered injustice when he was forgotten and left unpromoted. But in chapter 6, Mordecai is rewarded and honored because God's silent sovereignty was at work. The injustice was turned around. See, the Jews suffered the threat of destruction and annihilation. But later in chapter 8, it's their enemies who are destroyed and annihilated because God's silent work was at work. I'm sorry, God's sovereignty was at work. And, and, and just the last conclusion, we, we will go through many things in life, injustices and threats abound. They abound evermore. But our call because of the gospel is not to despair because God is thinking 12 moves ahead. And if you would just trust in him and place your faith in him, then you can see it. Let's pray. Father, we ask for eyes to see, but not an eye to see just as we want or false realities or illusions, but eyes to see as you are truly doing that work in our lives through your silent sovereignty. Lord, in our individual lives, I'm sure many of us can think of those instances, those examples, those personal stories 
of feeling an unfairness, an injustice, or a threat against us. But Lord, would you turn those into opportunities to trust you, opportunities to see your hand at work in our lives, even when we don't hear your voice. Teach us, Lord, to be content with those Elijah in the cave experiences when you're quieter than a low whisper. Teach us, Lord, to embrace these trials that come our way, to embrace them as opportunities to grow in trust, not seeing them as reasons to doubt. Oh Lord, increase our faith in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now may the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father Almighty and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all, both now and forevermore. Amen. Hear the dismissal from James 1. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Go in peace, friends.